May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strong rock and redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Turn the other cheek. Do not withhold even your shirt. Um, but Jesus, what about boundaries? What about the fact that if I'm nice or helpful to a certain person or persons, I can be seen condoning something that I don't morally agree with? What about, what about, what about? We're so quick to jump to that but. We want to jump to the exceptional case. For very real, historical, and material reasons, we want to recognize the harm that these passages have perpetuated against victims of discrimination, abuse, and violence. And these words have been used as weapons against the most powerless. They have been used to justify obedience of slaves, to bind women to abusive husbands, and to subdue those who bear the brunt of systemic discrimination. But the honest truth of it is, is that we humans are very, very good at making up excuses for not doing things that are hard. And these words of Jesus, these words we hold sacred in Scripture, they're hard words. They challenge us. They challenge the nice, tidy structures of moral reasoning that we have constructed. They lay siege to the justifications we use to fortify ourselves from any measure of discomfort. So before we jump to the exceptions, let us stay with the text. Before we jump to what the text doesn't, can't possibly mean, let us linger over these words of Jesus. Let us sit with the discomfort these words evoke. And I know this work is hard, but this work we do together. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. The commandment begs the question, who are our enemies? My partner and I live a stone's throw away from the cathedral down in Thornton, and for the past week and a half, we've seen firsthand the fracture from a team of five million to a country quick to jump up, point fingers, and declare, you are my enemy. It sure seems as if humans love in-groups and out-groups. Whether it's the anti-mandate protesters protesting against the government or the social media trolls dehumanizing the protesters, what we see is the creation of an us-versus-them framework. It's all too easy to condescend and call the outsider naive, ignorant, a bunch of idiots, some other form of subhuman. But this kind of condescension is just another form of violence, a form of violence that ignores each other's agency, personhood, and humanity. It may make us feel better in the short term to name-call, or to dismiss those we don't agree with, saying they're stupid. It certainly makes me feel superior to proclaim, I know better than you. And it makes it easier to have faith in humanity to say, oh, they've just been brainwashed. It makes it easier for me to say, you are not in my group. 
the radical call of the gospel. Being generous or coming to our family and friends or to those on our side, that is not the kind of love modeled in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. These difficult words, love your enemies, they challenge us to reflect on who our enemies are. And there are very real enemies out there. There are those individuals and systems who oppress, who abuse, who trample the poor and spread injustice. The late activist Barbara Dimmy was involved in everything from the movement for nuclear disarmament, civil rights, women's rights, gay rights, and she coined this metaphor of two hands of nonviolent resistance. With the one hand, we reach out to disrupt an oppressor or unjust system. And yet the other hand is raised, outstretched, reaching out, saying, I will not cast you out of humanity. I refuse to forget your humanity, and I refuse to let you forget mine. Well, I personally cannot find much theological warrant for the anti-vax and anti-mandate positions. Those who hold those views are still our family and we stand with our hand outstretched to them. At the EFM session the other day, I was reminded of the story of the warrior, Hene Tekere Karamir, the Mori woman remembered for her acts of mercy after the battle at Gate Pa. At risk to her own life, she gave water to several dying enemy soldiers. On the one hand, she was a warrior who fought for her land and her people. And yet on the other hand, she refused to let go of her humanity and the humanity of the enemy soldiers. There's a piece of folk wisdom my cello teacher passed down to me when I was first learning to play. A piece of wisdom passed down from generations to generations of string players she told me that when an instrument is played well, the instrument itself improves in tone and warmth. Now luthiers, those who make the string instruments, when pressed will admit that there is no conclusive double-blind experiment, any evidence to support this theory. But part of the problem in gathering this evidence is the difficulty in creating an experiment that is truly double-blind. Thus, while there's no real evidence in the affirmative, there's also no real evidence that this folk wisdom is not true. And so with this paucity of proof in either direction, the myth persists. So why do musicians insist that playing an instrument well improves the instrument? It could be that the instruments that already sound good get played more, and any noted improvement is just the natural improvement any well-crafted instrument would develop with age. Or similarly, it could be a Darwinian survival of the fittest situation in which only the good-sounding instruments survived to be played much at all. Or perhaps it could be that there is something about the resonance, the echoes, the sound waves, and the harmonics that materially improve a physical instrument's tone and sound quality. In other words, it could be that the encounter between musician and instrument 
creates a resonance that enriches the material of the instrument itself. That's the way I think about these words from Scripture. When it seems like we're at an impasse politically, socially, scientifically, when we let these crazy-sounding words of Jesus play over our bodies and souls, we, in fact, begin to change. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Turn the other cheek. Do not withhold even your shirt. I pray that this week we will let those words from Scripture play in and through ourselves. May they move through our hearts and our minds and spring to our lips, especially when the impulse is to reach for an easy insult, a put-down, or to cast some other verbal stone. Let us acknowledge the pain of disagreement. Let us acknowledge the reality of hurt and abuse. But most importantly, let us be transformed by these radical words of Scripture as the instruments are transformed by well-played music. These words have not become any less difficult since Jesus said them 2,000 years ago, and they challenge us today to rise to a higher path. A path of love marked not by vengeance, abstraction, nor fear, but a path towards a world where we all can flourish, where all of us, oppressors, abusers, and all those we hate included, can find redemption and liberation, a place of welcome, 